Filmstruck is the streaming service for fans of great cinema and the exclusive streaming home for the Criterion Collection, featuring a bounty of independent and foreign titles, plus original bonus material. And Filmstruck is now available on Roku. Start your free trial today at filmstruck.com. Hello and welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the digital producer. In an age of Rotten Tomatoes extremes, too many people are quick to judge movies as total disasters or masterpieces. Yet we've all seen a bad movie with one great scene in it, or a great movie that has an awful scene. And that's what we'll be discussing today, as we try to reconcile the sometimes contradictory artistic impulses and variable success rates that can occur in a single film. I was joined by Ashley Clark, contributor to Film Comment. Shani Enelo, author of Method Acting and Its Discontents. And Michael Koreski, editorial director at the Film Society of Lincoln Center. To discuss some notable examples, here's our conversation. So today we're going to be talking about a phenomenon that plagues certain films, maybe certain auteurs more than others. There is something that when I first saw Breakfast at Tiffany's, I could not believe it existed in this classic film, and that is Mickey Rooney's performance as this caricature of a Japanese man. It's in the book, it's in the original book, but not the fact that a treasured former child actor is playing yellow face takes you out of everything. But of course, would it really be a Blake Edwards movie without some sort of like anti-Asian shit? But so there are a lot of movies that have something where it's just like just completely takes you out. And what we're going to do today is sort of isolate a certain scene where it's just like, whoa, what are you doing? Oh my God, this is awful. Or conversely, in a bad movie, something that is like so amazing and so beautiful that you're like, oh, maybe in a better world, the rest of the movie would have been like this. So we'll start with bad in the good. Bad scenes in good movies. And Ashley... Can you kick us off? So today I would like to talk about Mike Lee's Naked, which in and of itself is quite an alarming statement <laughs> to reassure people that I'm talking about the film. It's, it's his film from 1993, um, which stars David Thewlis as Johnny, uh, a drifter from Manchester who escapes down the motorway from a... Uh, you know, he's about to receive a beating because he has had a very unpleasant sexual encounter which looks like rough sex which turns into a rape and that's the very first scene of the movie this incredibly confrontational piece of work he comes down to, to london to crash with his old girlfriend louise played by leslie sharp um and after seducing her flatmate her, her you know her roommate um he disappears off into into london uh, and and kind of goes on a series of desultory one-on-one encounters with various waifs and strays in, in, in the London night. It is from minute one, a very, as I mentioned a second ago, a very confrontational work. Um, it treads a very fine line in, in many respects. It, it feels like it's almost always about to come off the rails in some way. Presents you with an incredibly unple- unpleasant but also charismatic and witty, compelling protagonist which, played by David Thewlis, is a product of Mike Lee's kind of unorthodox way of working with actors. They workshop, it's kind of a theatrical experience, they'll workshop for, for many, many months um, without necessarily a script, and they'll develop a big backstory. Um, and, and David Thewlis's performance is, is I think, um, alongside the very kind of interesting poetic rendering of, of London, the main reason why the film works. 
Now, the film doesn't work in some respects. One respect is the character of Jeremy, or slash Sebastian, an, an evil misogynist landlord played by Greg Crutwell, an actor whom about whom I know very little, other than through some recent research, I found out he's now a soccer coach in South London. <laughs> so his acting career didn't really take off, and he plays a very kind of uh, a, a strange peacocking sexist rapist who kind of stalks the the London evening before shoring up at the flat and terrorizing these two women um, and his 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 character and his performance of it with this very mannered form of expression and a kind of a strange plosive laugh that he keeps <coughs> that he keeps doing it's, it's very staged and very mannered and difficult to react to difficult to know how to react to is he's supposed to be a comedy figure his character seems to me troublesome because he exists almost entirely because he's so one-dimensional to throw johnny into relief to say well this this johnny character might be a a sexist you know misogynist bully but he's not as bad as this guy with all of that out the way just to kind of establish that the film really does skirt a fine line between good and good and bad a hundred and 20 odd minutes into a 131 minute film in comes crashing uh, a, a incredibly poorly conceived supporting character played by claire skinner the character's name is uh sandra sandra, sandra. sandra. a nurse who lives at the flat with with louise and sophie where, where johnny is crashing and she's been kind of talked about vaguely she's been alluded to she's a, she's a nurse uh, who's been on holiday in in zimbabwe and she comes back in and throws off the film's rhythm completely with a hysterically mannered performance, can't finish a sentence, runs around in kind of screwball fashion from room to room. This is something I can't... I don't... It's not... I just don't need all this palaver. Oh, shit. And... As I said, completely throws the, the film's tone off. This kind of tone of, of melancholy and menace that's been built up just when you think the film's about to reach its conclusion. It does recover, I should say, for, I think, a profoundly sad and beautiful ending. But I just can't for the life of me work out what what was happen- what was going through Mike Lee's mind when he made the decision to to bring this absurd caricature in. It's not a new problem for Mike Lee. I mean, Naked is atypical... Uh, well, it certainly was at the time because it focused on one character predominantly in Johnny. It's kind of a, a one-character piece with a few supporting characters dotted around. Prior to that, he'd done quite a lot of ensemble films. And Mike Lee's films often fall off the rails in, in some respect or other. But it's v- very strange uh, in Naked to see that come screeching in two hours into a 130-minute film. I 100% agree with you. It's so bizarre. And I can't, as you say, I mean, it's it's really hard to comprehend what was going on on that set? What was going on, you know, with that actress and that director that produced this bizarre, yeah, truly bizarre performance? And the question you ask is, what does the film lose if she's not in it? Yeah. Absolutely nothing. Nothing. <laughs> nothing. She has almost no impact on the narrative whatsoever. Yeah. It seems to be, uh, and just an extraordinary lapse of judgment. Had she been introduced early in the film, there might have been something to link it back to. Oh, here she is again. Here's the return of this comic character. But it's such a hairpin turn. I, I mean, I'd, I'd love to to read a, a defense of, of her inclusion. I, I mean, I wonder if it's an intentional throwing a wrench in the works for any particular reason. I mean, he's, I mean, he's so 
meticulous about his rehearsal process, but then it often seems like, and then when it's time to make the movie, oh, let's just see what happens. And we put all these meticulously drawn, long researched, long lived in uh, characters in the same place. And I, and I haven't seen Naked in a while, but I do recall there being a weird tonal shift at the end. However, to go back to the Jeremy character, that always struck me as the bigger problem for the film because it's threaded throughout the entire film. Yeah. I find that character completely unwatchable, not just because he's a psychopath, but because it's so poorly acted and conceived. And also, like, isn't he introduced lifting weights? It's an actor who's never lifted weights before. <laughs> it doesn't, doesn't appear to be the case. Um, he, he is... It's so crudely drawn and so one-dimensional. Where, you know, where, when I was first asked about this podcast, Jeremy came straight to mind, but I couldn't isolate one scene because all of the scenes that he is in, none of them really work. And I do wonder whether the, the, the Sandra character was simply a case of Mike Lee being unable to let go or, or perhaps being sympathetic after working on this rehearsal process for so long to say, yeah. I can't bear to lose the character completely. Yeah, and that it might have been a mercy inclusion or a union issue, <laughs> or a union issue. Could, yeah, because she, I mean, because again, it's like you that that her scenes are sort of reduced to like these mentions, and then it's like all of a sudden yeah. out of nowhere for no good reason. And even when the film doesn't work, or even when you know the rest of the film, certain things don't stick. There's, I don't think the film ever becomes completely laughable. It, mm-hmm. It's unconvincing in places, but I don't. I, the, the, the switch to comedy just. throws me every time I watch it I'm very fond of the film and I like that it makes me feel uncomfortable and that I have a different read on it each time but the one thing I never have a different read on is that bloody performance (laughs) (laughs) yeah and part of it is rhythmic right I mean the whole the whole film you know unfolds in these manic monologues right Mm. from obviously from the main character but but from other characters too and I mean the rhythm of the way that that actor delivers her lines it's this weird halting it almost it does feel like a kind of a a stage ploy like it actually it actually felt to me rewatching it like this actor was a theater actor dropped into this kind of you know, much more minimally, you know, realist world uh, that that and the, and it, it, rhythmically it just it, it's really striking. Yeah. And playing against the, a character that you've spent two hours trying to understand yeah. who's so fully realized. And then for this. Yeah. I've said all I have to say about yeah. this. <laughs> <laughs> it's bad. Mike, yeah. sort it out. Mike. <laughs> But Shani, what was your first choice? Okay, so I had I had I had two that I couldn't decide between, but I think I'm going to go with the first one because it sort of follows nicely from Ashley's. So, and similarly to Ashley, you know, it, it's a little bit hard to isolate a scene in this film that doesn't work because the problem that I'm going to identify with this particular scene, I think, plagues the film throughout. Although it also, to me, is what makes the film interesting. So it's Cassavetti's Gloria, which is, you know, a, a flawed but uh, a flawed film that I have a lot of affection for. And part of the reason I have a lot of affection for it is that I feel like it's a great showcase for Jenna Rollins's ability to barrel through a scene despite numerous obstacles uh, put in her way including pretty poor dialogue and often really unresponsive scene partners including the kid which is actually what I love about the film Uh, you know I love that this kid is not a good child actor Um, you know he's like a he's a really so he's a really weird presence and he throws her a bunch of curveballs and watching her respond to that is what I think makes the film actually really enjoyable and have this interesting sort of rhythm and, and, and vibe in general but so that said, you know, there is a, a, 
almost at the very end of the film, there's a really strange scene where Gloria leaves the kid in a hotel and goes to see her mob boss ex in the hopes that she will be able to convince him not to kill her and the kid um, because uh, the whole movie they've been on the run from the mob who killed the kid's family. As as that was a spoiler if anyone hasn't seen it. Um, <laughs> so it's, it's it's a very strange scene. First of all, you know that the whole film uh, there's a lot that isn't explained. We never really know what are these these apartments that Gloria takes the kid to. We never know whose apartments they are. We never know exactly what Gloria's backstory is, except we learn we you know we do learn that she has this mob past, past as a mob mole. So then she goes to this fancy but weird apartment um, that sort of looks like Cassavetti's just like opened an Upper East Side apartment, you know, townhouse at random and was like, sure, this will do. Um, it's like very undressed, the apartment. There's just like, there's no stuff around, but there are all these people around and we don't know why there are all these people there. People wander through the shots in towels. Like, do you remember this? Like, there's this weird, like they're taking showers. We don't know why. There are all these men and she, and she sits, she is sat, she they they sit her at this um long table across from the boss and it's immediately it immediately feels like they're in two totally different movies <laughs> i was watching it with a friend who turned to me and said these people have never had sex and it's like it's really that's really <laughs> what it feels like there's no tension there's no there's no charge to the scene at all you know um ostensibly these are people who had a long romantic relationship and haven't seen each other in years and one is trying to kill you know you would think there would be a a, a charge there of some kind and instead it, it's just this really dud scene where the, the actor who's playing the mob boss who's an Italian actor whose name unfortunately is escaping me but he he is doing this kind of you know this kind of minimal thing which could potentially work except that Rollins's performance is so del- kind of deliciously broad in its you know gangsterish you know near camp um, and so instead it just looks like you know she's kind of in this you know noir um you know persona and he's um you know doing this you know kind of minimal realist thing and it totally falls flat it's never really clear what's what the scene accomplishes what's done in, in the scene um we sort of it sort of ends where it starts and she just kind of escapes as they're going to kill her in that moment um there are all these you know the, all these moments in the scene that where you think it might take off and then it falls flat and you know i think i think it was it's a it's a it's a messy film in general which is sort of what gives it its charm um but in this case you know it at the moment where it really needed to sort of funnel to a point and you know rise to a, a some kind of emotional or psychological climax instead it just you know dithers out in this weird um you know non just men scene. in towels yes just <laughs> men in towels wandering around an undressed apartment which is not good for the scene that ostensibly the entire film has been building to right exactly <laughs> exactly exactly also it yeah. must be difficult to isolate Cassavetti's messes that work and Cassavetti's messes that don't work or maybe not difficult to isolate but but you've been trained to watch Cassavetti's movies in a certain way so that by the time let's say you get to Gloria yeah. after you've seen Woman of the Influence or Shadows or Chilling on My Chinese Bookie you get to Gloria so you're probably making excuses or exceptions in your head like okay well Absolutely. I, this is what he was going for and it's clearly method to this madness and I'm and I think that's probably how people watch a lot of auteur films but especially with Cassavetes like this had to have been intentional yeah. right he's a real I think like to an extent like Mike Lee he's a real high wire act like there are moments watching things like Faces and even Love Streams which I think is a profoundly beautiful film 
where another take this could have gone way off the rails this yeah. could have just been bad mm -hmm. somehow it reaches this kind of poetic emotional well, yeah. truth but right. there's they're always on the cusp and i think that's kind of what makes them special so maybe that's why the flatness of this strikes you so much yeah yeah, I think so. I think so. But also, also because, you know, in a way, I love it even for its badness, because again, it, it, it shows, you know, it's like Rollins is thrown back on herself, right? And has to sort of, you know, figure out a way to make this scene work. And so what we're, I, what I feel like we're watching in that moment is, you know, a really masterful actor, you know, left completely to her own devices, you know, trying to act her way out of this box that she's been put in. <laughs> and so, you know, so there's, there's a kind of, there's a kind of charm in that, that frankly, sometimes I miss from scenes for instance between Rollins and Cassavetes himself which often to me feel a little bit too kind of polished and comfortable and a little you know that lack a little bit of vulnerability or unsafety you know and that and that start to feel a little bit pat to me so I guess this is an example of you know a bad scene in a in a good movie, <laughs> um, kind of good movie, right. yeah. That that actually maybe you know in in some ways makes the film more interesting. It's interesting with Cassavetes too. I feel like it, it, he he makes scenes that go on longer than they should go on, longer than you expect them to go on. So there's always the chance that a Cassavetes scene will tip over into something that could be quote unquote bad, and it doesn't often happen. Which again is a testament to how brilliant he is. But I was actually thinking about in preparing for today you know filmmakers who have really really they pack a lot in with really short scenes as opposed to filmmakers who have these really attenuated scenes like a Cassavetes and I was kind of thinking about Cassavetes versus Altman because I was thinking there has to be an Altman film that I can talk about today because his movies are so packed with stuff and I love the ones that I love I love so much but there's got to be something in there and I actually had a hard time I didn't pick right. one because I went through Nashville in my head over and over again there's got to be something in Nashville that is terrible and there Maybe there is, but nothing that throws the thing off. No. And I think that even Altman films that are about one or two characters, he tends to give you just enough stuff, like three women. It's, there's just enough in each scene where he hits the right mark, the right moment, and he's out. Whereas Cassavetes, it's just going to keep rolling and rolling until you're like, I cannot watch this anymore. Yeah. Sometimes that's great, and sometimes it's like, I don't know what yeah. this is. Because, I mean, I was also thinking about Altman, too, because he's, you know, along with somebody like probably, you know, John Huston or Ken Russell, they're just very hit or miss auteurs, right? But I feel like because he did have this background, you know, I did a video essay about this a long time ago. He had this background in sort of in working in TV and working in the industry and like he really kind of it was controlled chaos. Like sometimes it was it just felt like chaos chaos and Donald Sutherland wanted him fired from Nash because he thought he was just like this pot smoking hippie idiot but it's like no well, sorry it, it fucking works <laughs> well, i'm happy to be proven wrong but i really do feel like with altman it's like you have some extremely bad movies yes. and you have some extremely good movies and they don't they don't really cross pollinate much it's mm -hmm. like one or the other yeah yeah um i could be wrong yeah somebody will tell me i'm wrong later <laughs> that's what the internet is for so instead of altman <laughs> instead of a lot of things because i did have a lot of options here i, I definitely thought about doing munich only to talk about that scene, but I actually don't think Munich is that great. I think it's a, I think it's good, but it, the, I'm talking about the literal climax of Munich with Eric Bana, sweat flopping off his head as he climaxes and weeps, fucking his wife while he thinks about the uh, athletes who were murdered. I don't know if you've seen Munich. No, Violet's making a face like, what are you talking about? Munich. Has... I haven't seen Munich, but I have done that. <laughs> Ha <laughs> ha
I have no response to that. You shouldn't try. Wait, are two of have, have two of you not seen Munich? Seriously? No. Munich has the most okay, none of you have seen Munich. No. Munich has the most tasteless, shocking climax. Not only of any Spielberg film, it's particularly shocking for Spielberg because he usually doesn't have sex in his films at all. But I mean, for any film that a studio released probably in the last 20 years, the end of Munich is unfucking believable. I, 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 Chris and I turned our heads, our jaws dropped, and we slowly turned our heads as, as, as it was happening. I'm actually not going to talk about Munich. <laughs> I think you said all you need to say. Um... And there are some people who have written very eloquent defenses of that because it is a very controversial scene. However, I'm going to talk about the mostly, absolutely lovely 1957 romantic comedy tearjerker An Affair to Remember by Leo McCary. People who have seen it probably don't think of this scene first because I'm sure they've blocked it out of their <laughs> minds because it's so horrific that the only proper response is denial. As people remember, it's Cary Grant and Deborah Carr, and they meet, they, they're betrothed to others, but they meet on a ship and they fall in love. And it's, it, it, it really is meant to evoke 30s screwball commies. It's actually a remake of Leah McCary's own 1939 film, Love Affair, which is a slightly better film with Irene Dunn and Charles Boyer. So this is like, you know, it's deluxe color. It's CinemaScope. It's the 50s. So it looks different, but it's supposed to have that feel. And it does. They have such a charm, Cary Grant and Deborah Carr. And as people who know the film probably remember, they part ways after this trip to go back to the other people. But they say, in six months, we're going to meet at the top of the Empire State Building and, you know, consummate our love affair once we get these other people out of the way. It's just a really good kind of, you know, slightly transgressive, interesting thing because they're also involved with perfectly fine people. They have to just be cheaters. They have to be happy cheaters. And then she's going to meet him and she gets hit by a car because she's uh, looking up. And so she doesn't show up. So he's up at the top of the Empire State Building. She never shows up. And he doesn't know why. You know, this is 1957. What are you going to do? A text? I don't think so. They don't even know each other's phone numbers. So basically the movie needs to create delays and <laughs> things to happen in the narrative before they can finally meet each other in the appropriately tear-jerking climax, which always does make me cry. Um, the most offensive and egregious of which is this scene where Deborah Carr, who's now been, you know, after she's had her accident, she's not walking. And so she is, she's a singer in the film. So I guess one of the horrible things she has to do is teach children how to sing. You know, she's, <laughs> she's now a teacher in a music, or it, she's teaching music in a public New York school. This is how far she's fallen. This is how far she's fallen. <laughs> and um, so there's a scene of a performance of the kids that she's been teaching. And this is, hasn't even been introduced. You haven't met these kids before. Suddenly, she's just sitting there in front of these. It's a 16-kid chorus and a 17-kid orchestra. And these are little kids, not professionals. <laughs> <laughs> and everything about the scene is so hilariously awful that it stops the movie completely dead in its tracks. I've, and I've told the story so many times of Violet is sick of hearing it. But a during the scene, a friend of mine turned to me, uh, we were at BAM watching it, and she said, this is grotesque. <laughs> and I will explain to you why. How many people in this room have seen An Affair to Remember? Do you remember the scene? <laughs> okay. <laughs> have you seen this? Okay, the song is called The Tiny Scout. 
And it was written by Harry Warren, who also wrote the really good main love theme from An Affair to Remember. But he also wrote this, so <laughs> I'll be on my shit list forever. <laughs> it is kind of like a Jiminy Cricket-esque, follow your conscience, let your conscience be your guide sort of song. But it has this repetitive structure, and it has these kids with these nattering, whining, like Leave it to Beaver voices. And it's the 50s, so they all kind of look like Leave it to Beaver. Freckly... Um, one of them like ha- has this kind of like I'm a New York kid kind of voice. No, <laughs> and he says he he says poor little mixed up kid, and he's this, and it's like dubbed, it's clearly dubbed in by an adult. Um, and so the whole thing is really weird. It was a year after the King and I, so Deborah Carr already had this this um <laughs> she had this persona of being like a songstress to children, right? This is what she did. Yeah, so yeah. they were pl- clearly playing off that. Um, and interestingly, the movie also, although not in the scene, the movie dubs her with Marnie Nixon, the same woman who dubbed her in King and I. So just she became the voice of Deborah Carr for all these films. As if I haven't said enough already, I do have to also have to preface, before the kids sing, one of the parents, this is supposed to be clearly a low-income neighborhood, kids, maybe slightly needy kids. Um, one, of the, one of the fathers comes up to Deborah Carr to, uh, before the kids start to sing to, to, to tell her how much he appreciates what she's done. And in this exact voice, the father says... I want to thank you for what you've done for my son. Now he won't grow up to be a mug like me. (laughs) And then he says, I'm I'm so stupid I ain't even ignorant. (laughs) To which Deborah Carr, given an impossible reaction shot, warmly smiles sympathetically as he walks away. Then the kids start to sing. And, oh, sorry, then the orchestra kicks in, and it is a full-on professional adult 50-piece orchestra. It's these kids with, like, cymbals and drums, you know, and they look confused. And the parents are like, oh, I hope this works out, crossing their fingers. But they play like a professional orchestra. And then the song comes on, and the song goes on and on and on. And then, just when you think it's almost over, and I have to say, this takes up more screen time than Over the Rainbow in The Wizard of Oz. I timed them. This is three and a half minutes of screen time, which is endless for a bunch of kids caterwauling. Just as you think it's going to end, there are these two African-American kids who have been center. And the, ki- other, the white kids part. And the two African-American kids come down, and they do a little soft shoe. A little, like a, you know... I hate to call it anything. It's like a shuck and jive. Yeah. And then they go back to their place. It is such <sighs> a horrifying scene in every way that all I can say is go watch it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it's on YouTube. Has to be. The song is on YouTube, but not the clip. Oh. Yeah, you have to, you have to watch it. the whole thing and see how... Or recreate it. See how yourself. it's sandwiched into this film completely I abjectly. Mean, I mean, that would be a whole different podcast right of like seemingly gratuitous little racist throw-ins well, yeah. you, you mentioned your um, yeah. mickey rooney at the yeah. start well it's in every blake edwards book right and every blake, blake edwards movie and i mean if, if you want to get really upset 
just go and watch the the montage which closes Spike Lee's Bamboozled. Yeah. Which kind right. of was an intensely researched collection of mm-hmm. clips from films that will just throw in a kind of blackface moment. Right. You know, some of them are just incredible. I and talked about how, that how particular one at the, on the musicals podcast we did, uh, that Mickey Rooney, Judy Garland, Babes in Arms sequence. So mm-hmm. when I think of Mickey Rooney and Breakfast at Tiffany's, I always think of that Babes in Arms scene too because it's unbelievable. It, I, I've talked about it at length in this podcast. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's worth mentioning that the, the black and white minstrel show in the UK uh, on the BBC was not cancelled until 1978, at which point it was still garnering quite healthy ratings and it was only a kind of creeping sense of of protest and actually we, lads we really can't do this anymore even though loads and loads of people in in across england really enjoyed it and even growing up in in kind of comedy shows in in, in britain you still would see you know, things like little britain uh mm-hmm. matt lucas who's yeah. now parlayed into a kind of tim burton regular i think yeah. in you know in blackface uh, as recently as you know five six years ago yeah you never see it coming until it's there. But I'm going to talk about one of my faves, Jerry Lewis, the errand boy, which was made the year after the ladies' man. And obviously the ladies' man is one of his greatest achievements. It's this beautiful, just like, you know, it's the, the set is often described as like this dollhouse set. And that's kind of what it is, where Jerry Lewis is, you know, running around flirting with all these different beautiful ladies in this totally surreal, totally wonderful candy-colored house and the errand boy is in black and white and it's obviously playing off of the bellboy in certain respects where jerry is morty this like little man child infant boy who's he goes to work for a studio as an errand boy it's in the title he does one of the classic jerry bits which is pantomiming along to an orchestra you know he's like one of the great semi-silent comedians where you know in the errand boy he sits at the head of the boardroom table and uh smokes a big cigar and like gestures along and like fakes talking to the music and sort of fakes it's it's so stupid but it's also brilliant and i love it and go watch it right now instead of listening to me talk about it uh there's also the candy store scene where he has to go up and get gigantic 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 glass bottles of candy off of a very high shelf it is classic slapstick stuff and then and then there's this one scene where he is sent into this prop room and in this prop room, you know, high shelves, very narrow corridors between the shelves. And then he goes to grab these puppets off the shelf. And then one of the puppets comes to life. And it's this little tiny clown puppet that looks like something you would get in a Happy Meal before Happy Meals were nice or had like product tie-ins. Like it's, <laughs> it's like made of the cheapest possible material. And the puppet gives him a lollipop which Jerry eats hilariously. And then the puppet gets sleepy and it pulls out a four-poster bed and it goes to sleep in the bed. But before it does, it says its prayers. Yeah, it's and then Jerry just sort of watches it and gets sleepy himself. And it's awful. <laughs> it's just like... So it's like What is going on in the scene, Violet? It's insane. It just makes no sense. <laughs> You're going to have to convince me that that's bad rather than good. <laughs> so how is this puppet done? Are we talking about animation, stop motion, or is it just a, a person it's some, it's photographed a hand, to it's look hand small? Puppet. Oh, it's, it's an actual hand it's puppet. It's an actual I hand puppet. I just watched puppet. this on YouTube to prepare yes. for this podcast. It's, un- it's, like, it's, it's unbelievably how, how cheap this thing is. First of all, it serves no purpose. It's just like a moment, just this utterly saccharine moment to just be like, you know, he's a goof. 
But well, also boring because it's it, so he boring. goes to sleep. It's like of all the things yes! the puppet could do. <laughs> yes. They're like, I know what'll be really exciting. Yes. The puppet will go to sleep. Yes. Yes. It's like, why? And then he also starts to fall asleep too. It's like, why? It's so boring to watch. <laughs> Yeah. How long it's, does this scene go on for? It goes on uh, almost five minutes, probably. Wow. It's pretty it's really long. long. It's it's like that's a long time. And for it's something. and it's all it's all silent. It's with this very like you know like gloopy string led orchestral music. So to, so to be clear, it's it's intended as a moment of, of relief or humanizing this character. But it doesn't even do that. You feel like it should do that, but it's really just like. It's like this very almost egotistical thing where it's like Jerry Lewis, he has his, you can see his giant pinky ring in this shot as you as you can in all of his great uh, films, but he can't even like share the screen with a real person that could possibly steal the spotlight from him. And so he has to just sort of like watch this little puppet go to bed. I think we could save it for a puppets on film podcast, but I think, I, I think that I always have a problem with puppets on film. Me too. Do you know that? Have you ever seen Lily, the Leslie Caron film? It's an MGM musical from the early '50s by Charles Walters. Uh, it's about uh, a young woman who runs away to the circus and she bonds with these puppets. <laughs> people, people like this Not film. People me. find it charming. Not this is me. like right after American in Paris. You know, she was she was new, but it's supposed to be so enchanting. And every single time she's in, interacting with a puppet, I'm so put off. And then there's a dream sequence in which the puppets get life sized. She dances with them. It's oh. horrifying. <laughs> horrifying. <laughs> I just think of that video by the video for Evil by Interpol with that with the puppet the yes. puppet called Norman. I think the puppet has a name, and it's so upsetting. And like, it's intended to be. Well, yeah, the puppets aren't killing you know, anyone. But then. the idea, no, but That's the idea that these puppets in the film. What's the film you're talking about? Lily. Lily. That they're supposed to be endearing. It's like, come on. No. No. <laughs> no. It ain't happening. It never happened. <laughs> There's also something weird. I mean, and this scene exemplifies that, that Violet just brought up exemplifies this perfectly. There's something very bizarre about watching a puppet that you know is operated by a human hand, mm -hmm. but you can't see the person operating it, right? It's like this weird sort of, you know, partial illusion that becomes really uncanny. Yeah. And I wonder if there's something about that. That's why puppets on film are, are so bizarre is that they're always, you know, we're always aware of their, they're theatrical in a way that, you know, films, films often an issue right and so you all you're always you know partially aware of the theatrical illusion which can end up just being really disturbing yeah <laughs> i've just thought of the uh, the john cusack character the puppeteer in being john malkovich when he gets beaten up at the start of kind of making the puppets engage in like lewd behavior in front of the little girl well which is and which is something that team america world police exploits yes. so well i mean yes. it's, yeah. it's a movie that's all based on that uncanniness. It's, Speaking it's of Team so America, smart. another really bad scene, I've got to say it very quickly, a bad scene in a good movie, the sex scene in Blue is the Warmest Color, oh, which yes. reminded me of the sex scene in Team America. Sex scenes, <laughs> with, with bad the sex scenes are a genre all their own. <gasps> but it just, yeah, yeah, yeah. It yeah, just suddenly, the film just stops <laughs> and it just goes on forever. <laughs> I think Shawnee almost... Uh, I, brought one of those, yeah, right? I know, I know. Should I bring it up? Is sure, that, go ahead. Well, I I was almost going to talk about the sex scene in Carol in Todd yeah. Haynes's Carol because I I think it's a really bad sex scene. It's a moment where the aesthetic of the whole film actually just doesn't work, uh, and you know it it actually and I think it also gets into some of the more ideological stuff that we're touching on here um, because it is a moment that reads to me as a sex scene between two women who 
not to make assumptions about the sexual history of Rooney Mara and Kate Blanchett, but who have not had sex with other women. <laughs> um, and it's, you know, it's aestheticized in a way that I think is also problematic. And, and it, it's, it's, it's narcissistic in a way that I think, you know, um, you know, raises uh, stereotypes about mm. gay people. And, you know, it's just a, it's just a really, I think it's a mess. Mm. I think it's a strong mess. I was having a similar reaction recently to a film that is not out yet. So embargoes be damned, but people have seen it. Call Me By Your Name, which is the new Luca Guadagnino film which was a big hit at Sundance, um, director of I Am Love, is, um, and a bigger splash, not a good movie. But this new movie, Call Me By Your Name, is um, being lauded by many people for having um, explicit gay content, and it's between Army Hammer, the very beautiful Army Hammer, and this young actor, Timothy Chalamet. And uh, w- putting aside the issues that some people have about the age d- difference, like the, the, you know, the kid looks younger than he, than he is and army hammer looks much older than he is. And he's, he's much older than the character is. So there's a, there is like a predatory aspect to it, which doesn't bother me as much as the fact that I'm watching again, two clearly straight actors doing a lot of actory things with each other's bodies. And like, I'm very happy that these actors are willing to do that now. That's great. I'm very excited fantastic more of that please but i can't get past the fact that they look like they have they have no interest in each other's bodies it's yeah. just mm-hmm. a fact of the matter yeah. yeah that is again a moment that will inevitably take me out is when you know two actors that you know are straight go to kiss each other and there's just something like yeah that chemistry ain't there oh, brokeback mountain was always like that i never yeah, understood right. why people were turned on by that i thought oh, it was no. ridiculous D- i mean d.a miller famously wrote that that sex scene was choreographed so as nobody could possibly get off on it <laughs> <laughs> it's true well and that is that is how I feel about the sex scene in Carol too. Yeah. Sorry, Todd. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll be right back. Now you can stream critically acclaimed films and cult favorites from the world's greatest film libraries with Filmstruck. Filmstruck is the streaming service for fans of great cinema and the exclusive streaming home for the Criterion Collection. Filmstruck brings you a bounty of independent and foreign titles, updated weekly plus original bonus material and expert commentary. And Filmstruck is now available on Roku. Start your free 14-day trial today at filmstruck.com. We're going to transition and talk about straight-up bad movies that have a dash of brilliance. I'm going to talk about Spike Lee's Kickstarter joint, <laughs> The Sweet Blood of Jesus, um, which begins with a breathtakingly beautiful credit sequence in which an uh, an extremely talented dancer called Lil Buck, who's, I think, born in Chicago, based in L.A., has kind of conceived his own dancing style called Jukin, which is a kind of a blend of just kind of hip-hop moves and Jeffrey Daniel from Shalimar, who used to, you know, ghost across the floor to to make it a night to remember. (laughs) Ask your your parents. He's doing it right now, and it's amazing. Ashley is doing it, doing this dance. I am indeed. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so it's it's a beautiful film and it's simply a series of uh, really beautifully edited shots of him dancing in front of various backdrops in new york i think some from jersey city as well so you get the view of the the new york skyline and it's scored by a kind of spare piano accompaniment by bruce hornsby of Bruce Hornsby and the range fame, mm-hmm. the way it is, one of the great civil rights songs, but mm-hmm. that's again another subject entirely. It sets such a, a tone of of melancholy and reflection. It features nods to many of of Lee's prior works, 
not in a kind of masturbatory way, in a in a way that almost he, you know, he's out here begging for for your change on Kickstarter, and he's almost as this film begins, he's asserting himself as an artist, and he's telling you what he's done, how he's represented Brooklyn. There's obvious allusions to the, the magnificent opening of, of Do the Right Thing with. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rosie Perez doing that incredible pugilistic dancing. There is an allusion to he got game. You know, he, he's kind of playing imaginary basketball at one point. And the way that the the the, the, um, the scene is stitched together, he will be midway through a dance a dance move, and it will cut. And his dance move, the same dance move, will finish in front of a different background. So it's very seamless, mm. and it creates a really really powerful spell. And having having been looking forward to this film for some time, having contributed a, a few pennies to to the, the the kickstarter campaign and i think this came after old boy which was the only film that spike lee made which he hasn't used the term joint for it was so clear he was disinterested in it and that showed in the the end product which was a very workaday rehash of uh, of, of the the original old boy so i was so excited by this and I was kind of let down by Red Hook Summer, which was, you know, his another low budget digital experiment a few years before. And I was so thrilled by this. I thought he's back. And then once the the, the that reflective melancholy tone has, has dissipated, it takes a few minutes for that spell to be broken. The film just falls off a cliff and it, it turns into an extraordinarily ham fisted remake of Bill Gunn's um, classic pseudo uh, vampire movie Gunja and Hess from 1973 which is an extraordinary film for many reasons uh, formally thematically tonally um, what it has to say about race class and religion in America and Spike Lee appears to have had literally no interest in investigating the, the, the themes of that film what he can bring to it it's it's a, a really rough awkward crude thumping together of, of various scenes uh, lo- lots of text no, no real subtext the film is a complete mess and it was uh, and the, the the opening it, it makes it so much more of a disappointment the film itself after such a, a beautiful opening again it's kind of like um the, the, the miniature of the, the scene in Naked that I, I mentioned, where, where you think, what was Mike Lee thinking? I just wonder what was going through Spike Lee's head um, with this movie at large. And, you know, it seems so lazy and so careless. And when he put so much thought into that opening, I think three and a half minutes, it's on YouTube, you should watch it. It is a stunning piece of filmmaking. And I can't think of another filmmaker who's done as much for the art of the opening credit sequence as Spike Lee has. Um, from I didn't mention Clockers also, which has that beautiful song by... Mark Dorsey, who sounds a bit like Stevie Wonder. Mm. He puts so much effort into that and this artistry. Spike Lee is constantly underrated. He's constantly put in a box of a, a provocateur or a, a politico when actually I think he's a wonderful artist. Yeah. And that is really borne out in the the, the, the artistry of, of his credit sequences. Um, and for, for, yeah, to, just to reiterate, for The Sweet Blood of Jesus to fall off such a cliff after such a beautiful opening is was an extraordinary disappointment. Yeah. I do recall the opening being incredible, and I remember very little about the rest of the movie. So that tells you something. I mean, I, I rem- I've seen Ganjan Hess a couple of times. I know that that's a great film. So to see that turned into something so pedestrian was just depressing. Um, and I remember the way that it's it... long, too. It's, it's over two hours. Mm-hmm. So it was like three long. minutes of, of beauty followed by two hours of just shit. And wasn't there also, speaking of eroticism, like it kind of eroticization or um, exploitation of lesbian sexuality. I feel like there's a bit yes. of that in that movie he, too. He, he throws in some kind of chic 
lesbianism with his you know we, we could do an entire conversation about Spike Lee's gender um, the way he tackles gender which sometimes he, he's, he's too honest for his own good I think you know he, he doesn't filter yeah. so you get you get a very honest representation on screen of a man who doesn't doesn't have a particularly well developed view of gender relations no. not to not to issue forth moral judgments but they're clearly problematic in some ways he also seems to quite clearly misunderstand the text like the original character hess dr dr hess green played by the great dwayne jones is absolutely riven by by remorse at the fact that he has to go out he goes out into uh, urban communities he steals from blood banks he steals blood from you know people on welfare and he's 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 in despair for the whole film and the way that uh, spike lee presents the character in this film there's no consistency to the character he's like a kind of swaggering guy who goes around and he doesn't seem to have any internal conflict whatsoever it's, it's an astonishing misreading i think of, of the original text not without uh, you know it's worth saying that uh, other than old boy i don't think spike lee i think he's congenitally incapable of making boring films i think he's mm. proficient at making bad films but they're never they're never boring right even when his films are all over the place things like she hate me uh, michael wrote a wonderful piece on that film um for reverse shot and I often go back to it as a a real case study in how to unpick a film that because of its unfashionable or, you know, widely received offensive notions towards gender and sexuality, uh, but still really interesting. And, and there are ways to unpick that and look at that within a, a director's body of work at large. So his films are never boring. And The Sweet Blow of Jesus is not boring, but it's just bad compared to the opening, which is good. Good good versus bad. She Hate Me is an odd example of a film that is, in a way, a good film constructed of bad scenes, somehow. Yeah. It's almost like one bad scene or another, and when you put them together, they make I mean, something really interesting. Would, that's sort of true of Chirac as well, where it's like, you know, they're very, there are moments that are so strong and, like, beautiful, like, beautifully realized, and, like, obviously what he... he but like, what is he actually trying to say with any anything in that film is very hard to determine. And then also just which was complicated by him, you know, going on late night TV and being like, yeah, women shouldn't have sex with guys until they stop fighting. Like, it's very fucking well, I think, weird. I think the Donald Trump comparison is, is a bit harsh. I, don't, I, I wouldn't necessarily want to draw yeah. too many parallels, but there is a similar thing going on in a way in that you want to leave Spike Lee sometimes and other filmmakers who are who are kind of their own kind mm -hmm. of self self-facilitating media nodes to quote yeah. Nathan Barley their own kind of commercial prospects they sometimes remove all doubt so mm -hmm. you've got the kind of the people scurrying to say oh Donald Trump like his press secretaries he's like oh he didn't he didn't mean that and he's just like yeah I fucking did <laughs> <laughs> and, and when Spike Lee went on telly to, or went on the tv to talk about how yeah actually women should strike women should do a sex strike and then people will stop dying and you're like Spike man <laughs> like there was some ambiguity there yeah and then now you've, there was just, actually like you've some... just removed all doubt it was like, you know again I think ugh. he's a fiercely talented guy but sometimes that that public persona can get in the way and then he made Crooklyn which is like one of the best oh. fucking movies like an I, amazing I movie that has one pretty bad sequence in it mm -hmm. when they go to visit the aunt oh, with the weird the lens shift the lens shift it's strange very very off-putting obviously intentional but i think to get the kind of audience response he wanted there were other routes he could have gone other than right. just a very simple lens shift that actually just looks like a mistake mm -hmm. it's just kind of a, it was like the simplest dumbest solution to that problem mm -hmm. but I, I mean it's a beautiful film in yeah. every other way 
Okay, so I am going to talk about a scene in the Marlon Brando directed 1961 film One Eyed Jacks, the only uh, Brando's only directorial effort, which, you know, of course, has this, you know, interesting uh, storied history where it was originally supposed to be directed by Kubrick, right? Is that the case? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. and ended up Brando ended up taking it over. Um, You know, the film is is kind of a mess, but has a lot that's really interesting in it. But to me, uh, the scene um, about a, a, about a third through between Carl Malden and, and Brando, which is a sort of, you know, a non-reconciliation scene where the two of them, you know, have this past as bank robbers. At the very beginning of the film, the Carl Malden character, who is edibly named Dad, um, and the uh, Brando character is edibly named Kid, um, you know, are trying to escape uh, from the police. And there's a, there's, a, there's a betrayal that happens where Dad uh, is supposed to go uh, retrieve ki- the kid and he he doesn't. Instead, he, you know, saves his own hide. And so Kid spends the film looking for dad and, you know, trying to figure out a, a, whether he's going to avenge himself and what that's going to look like. And he, he tracks him down in Monterey, where dad has become uh, the mayor of the town by sort of remaking himself um, as a solid citizen. And so there's this scene where, you know, Brando finds him. He approaches the house where dad lives. Dad sees that he's coming. And uh, t- gets gets his holster right, and it's unclear whether there's going to be an immediate confrontation. Um, and instead, they play out this uh, very tense, you know, wonderful scene where it's clear that they are both thinking seriously about killing the other, but don't want to let on that they are, and are trying to figure out whether the other one is going to kill them first, and what you know, what each one of them knows about what actually happened. They're clearly both lying to each other, but we don't know exactly how at various points. But if you're looking now to be satisfied for what I did, I'd be sorry for it, kid. But if that's what you want, just let me know how and where you want the play. I'll stand up to you. You're getting way ahead of yourself, Dan. No need for all that, because nothing happened to me. Pulled around them dog faces until it got dark, and I went down, I stole Captain's horse. They weren't about to find me neither. And after that, it was just, you know, rosemary and sweet whiskey and whooping and yelling. You sure that's the straight of it, kid? Well, you know me, Dad. If I didn't feel right about it, we'd been out there splattering each other all over that front yard. I admit I was hot about it for a time, but that's five years ago. Man can't stay angry for five years. Can he? It goes on for a long time. It actually continues, transforms into a dinner scene, right, where where dad invites the kid to stay for dinner. That's similarly tense and multi-leveled. It's just such a joy to watch these truly um, accomplished actors who have also worked together for so long mm-hmm. um, in so many, you know, different kinds of character relationships just play this, you know, sort of wonderfully both simple in a certain in a certain way and also, you know, complex and psychologically rich scene together. Um, it's also a delight to watch Carl Malden, who, you know, often was cast as, you know, the sort of the hapless, sincere, earnest character play a conniving, deceptive character. 
Um, and you can see that, you know, it's, it's, I also feel like there's a lot of generosity in the way that Brando actually shoots this scene where he gives Malden some of the best shots. You know, he's not, he doesn't, he doesn't remove himself uh, completely at, in, in any way, but he, you know, he sort of lets Malden's, he lets Malden's performance really speak for itself. And it's a, it's a great performance by Malden. You know, the movie goes off the rails. Well, if it was ever on the rails, it's, it's you know, it's confusing sort of from beginning to end. Um, and uh, it, you know, but the relationship between these two characters is always interesting, even as it gets increasingly bizarre. And, you know, famously, there's this uh, very uh, homoerotic, also, you know, Christ-like sequence of of the Malden character whipping Brando <laughs> towards the end, um, which is, you know, is is almost amazing and is quite fascinating, but really never coalesces into something that feels uh, thoughtful or <laughs> considered. But this this one scene is, you know, you 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 wish the whole movie was like this one scene. So Marlon Brando didn't direct the moon landing. You're saying? <laughs> I suppose that is what I'm saying. Okay. <laughs> do you th- do you actually think it's a bad movie though? I mean, only I'm not, and we shouldn't have these binaries, good or bad. Right. Like I'm not, or great or terrible. But it's a movie that, interestingly, a lot of people listening might say, but that's a complete masterpiece. It has right. it has a cult following right. where people think that it's really great. The, until it was recently released by Criterion, it right. was unreleased all these years, unavailable, yeah. right. and it was like one of the most sought after titles. I'm just yeah, curious. I mean, no, I guess, I guess, like Gloria, you know, the films I chose weren't obviously good or bad. I sort of couldn't, I, I, I sort of couldn't think about things in that way. I guess Carol is more obviously a bad scene, a good movie. I don't think the movie is a masterpiece. So to put my cards on the table, um, I think that uh, you know that that people cut Brando a lot of slack in in thinking of it that way. I think that it's it's an interesting film. I think it's a weird film. I I understand why it has a cult following, but I I don't think it's a successful film in what it tries to do, which is you know which is to sort of unpack the western right and and you know critique. I, I guess it's trying to critique um, tropes of American masculinity on film, but it doesn't really succeed in doing that what doesn't <laughs> what doesn't investigate tropes of american <laughs> masculinity fail. That's miserable. um yeah be- before i p- mention my other film i did want to say it was interesting like when coming up with ideas for this do we pick a do we pick like a masterpiece that has mm-hmm. that one thing in it but I actually had a hard time like i almost picked fanny and alexander for my first film right. which i think is a i do think it's a masterpiece i think it's a you know flaws be damned i don't care i think masterpieces can have flaws uh it's one of my my favorite films of all time but it has that uh really weird jewish mysticism (laughs) going on that i have always found very strange and it just stops the movie cold for me Um, i mean it becomes a different thing entirely yes but jewish magicians yeah (laughs) but they're not even magicians they're just like inherently mystical because they're jews right and they make magic happen yeah i don't don't even want to not to get too far into that (laughs) Um, so okay so uh, my other my other film which is I do think a bad film in many ways though I think it's an enjoyable film that I've seen many times and I picked it because it's a matched pair with my first film it's Sleepless in Seattle Nora Ephron's very disturbing 1993 (laughs) romantic comedy um, that is sort of like a spiritual sequel or remake to An Affair to Remember, or at least it references it constantly, and the entire plot is based on the plot of An Affair to Remember. As you recall very briefly, it's you know Meg Ryan, um, who is engaged to the lovely and wonderful Bill Pullman, 
uh, hears a radio show one night, which she's alone in her car, in which Tom Hanks, um, who is you know at the other on the other side of the country, in Seattle, um, has been um, coerced into talking on a self-help radio show by his son, and he is a recent widower, and so she is driving home alone in her car. And she is spellbound by what he's saying. She's spellbound by the wonderful things that he says about his late wife, about the love he has for his son, about his melancholy, his sadness, his you know getting up every day and trying to move on, how hard it is being without his wife. And it is this kind of like emotional pornography that Meg Ryan's character really gets off on. Uh, Maggie, uh, my wife, she really... I mean, she loved it. She made everything beautiful. And it's, it's just tough this, this time of year. I mean, any kid needs a mother. Could it be that you need someone just as much as Jonah does? Yes. Don't answer that. Let's get into that right after these messages. Sam, Jonah, don't go away. And I pick this scene because I think it's a beautiful scene. I think it's a beautifully directed, acted, and conceived scene. I think Meg Ryan's performance done entirely on her face is superb. I think that she has like oceans of feeling and in, in, in just these um, the smallest gestures. And I think that Tom Hanks performance on the radio is really wonderful and I think the woman who plays Dr. Marcia Fieldstone (laughs) who I believe is Caroline Aaron a wonderful New York character actor um, is magnificent and there's something about just looking at Meg Ryan in that very dark car there's no music on the soundtrack uh, driving through the middle of the night listening to this you can understand why she's entranced and the reason the reason that that is important is because the entire film's incredibly ridiculous and reductive and borderline offensive concept is based on you buying this scene. If this scene doesn't work, if this scene cinematically falls apart, then the entire film falls apart. And the scene is so persuasively directed that the movie, no matter how ridiculous it gets, manages to float along. And um, it's an interesting... The reason I don't like the film is because it sort of takes uh, the template of an affair to remember and like, you know, like the extravagant masochism of an affair to remember, which is like not as much as like magnificent obsession or a Cirque film, but you know, this woman, Deborah Carr's character has to be, you know, crippled for life and redeemed uh, for this couple to get together. You know, this, this is about like the destruction of the body for the resurgence of the soul kind of thing. And um, Sleepless in Seattle takes that as like a blueprint for living. You know, I mean, the movie is all about, as written, it's like these movies are the movies that women watch and women love. And these, this is how you will find your mate. There's one person for you. Drop your entire life. You know, drop the nice guy that you've been dating. Throw your life overboard and drive across the country and find a person you've never met. Might be a serial killer. Who knows? That's said many times in the film. The film acknowledges that it's a ridiculous concept, but it pushes it towards this extreme conclusion. Right. Acknowledging something as a problem is not actually, unless you actually address it, address it, it's not addressing it. Right? And, and the, like, yeah, the film, is, it's so prescriptive. And it's its so much about men versus women. And, I, and that is also a thing that really bothered me about like nine, I think more maybe in like 90s romantic comedies. It's like, a, it was like a men are from Mars, women are from Venus kind totally. of movie. Like, yeah, right? Yeah. You, totally. this is how women live. This is how men live. This is how women think. This is how men think. Mm-hmm. Follow these dreams that pop culture has told you you're supposed to follow as a woman. I find the movie extremely offensive. I find it extremely disturbing. And I think that scene is um, like completely amazing. Isn't it funny how 
how the the main, mainstream films like that are cloaked in all the kind of the, the packaging and yeah as you say there's, there's a romance to it but really they're actually cousins to things like Breaking the Waves by, by Lars von Trier in terms of how disturbing they are yeah. in terms of the, the, the sexual politics that they're peddling yeah the lengths that you have to go to to find some conception of what love is supposed to be right I mean if we were gonna though make a list of all the movies that require women to be masochistic and to love their suffering you know that list would you know that's kind of the the trope you know on a Tom Hanks tip <laughs> I wanted to give a shout out to Captain Phillips which I think is quite a bad film mm-hmm. um, for, for many many reasons which I won't go into which is entirely upended by the extraordinary final scene when Tom Hanks who's been clenched and tense for the entirety of the film the, the, the circumstances he's been under finally gets it registers what's happened to him the experience and it's just I think two minutes of just unbelievable acting it's, it's incredible that scene I'm glad you brought that up it's also that was the moment that I started to like love Tom Hanks it took a long time but <laughs> from that point forward I just I, I love this late later stage of Tom Hanks career I think he's been brilliant in a lot of films recently and I think that that I don't even know how that feat of acting was done but I'd love to see a whole half hour documentary about that scene yeah it's interesting it seems like all of our picks sort of fall into two categories right one is the sort of conceptual misstep or good step <laughs> like like um like ashley's pick or it's about acting like it's, it yeah. seems like we're all you know we're all you know drawn to um these moments either where actors sort of rise above the material or really uh, mess with the material in an yeah. unfortunate way yeah i could say a lot about nora Ephron and my distaste for her but i won't Instead, I'm going to talk about Zabriskie Point as sort of a dovetail to uh, Ashley talking about Spike Lee's, you know, incredible openings. This is one of the most famous endings of a film. And I don't I don't actually really like Zabriskie Point. And I feel like most people don't. And there's just it's hard to pin down what exactly is not working about it, because there's if you watch Like, you know, I was rewatching it and there are so many moments where I almost start to get into it and then something will take me out. And obviously part of that uh, has to do with the two leads in this. Just a little. Like the woman who plays Daria, she ain't Monica Vitti. Like it is just not fucking working uh, for me in any moment. Like she just, whenever she stares pensively, I'm like, you look like an idiot. Like, I'm sorry. You just are not project. Like I'm not registering anything interesting going on inside of you internally, any sort of mystery. And I think this is actually probably what kind of undoes the film is that there is so much kind of heavy handed stuff more so than any other Antonioni film. Like usually his films are very, like what I find interesting about them is that they're very ambiguous and beautiful and it's like sometimes it seems to be moving towards something and it pulls back all of a sudden like the part in red desert where you know her son suddenly stops being able to walk and then she tells him this very long meandering story and at the end of the story she he's like oh i can walk again i'm actually not paralyzed and she just starts sobbing and it's like it's so strange and i think there's a power to that so a lot of that ambiguity and here it's just like he paints a biplane weird colors and then flies too close to the woman it's bad but what is very good <laughs> and it's and i mean it's actually it's funny because it's actually an instance of very 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 heavy-handed there's no subtlety in what this the sequence is trying to say the final sequence of zabriskie point is when this woman daria is she drives away from this new housing development in the desert after she's you know sort of like 
disillusioned and she sees this Native American maid, which is, again, totally fucking unnecessary and weird. Like, it's just like, what? You can just drop. Like, literally, she runs into this maid who smiles at her and then walks up some stairs. And I'm like, okay. But anyway, so this, you know, cute little flower child who's sort of between these two worlds of like student protesters and like reckless housing developer guys. She drives away from this new development and she imagines it exploding and she imagines all these different consumer products exploding in slow motion. And it's just incredible. And especially with, you know, one of the very good things about the film, and I don't think there's any debate about this is the music really amazing Pink Floyd and the way that the tenor of the the things exploding changes when it starts screaming. There are moments when the way that the objects sort of change and some of them sort of hang in the air and other times they're sort of slowly rotating and it's just your little reward for sitting through uh, very self-involved people talking about nothing. Well, it's it's also one of those sequences that's uh, sort of like indescribably good, literally, because if you start to describe what that scene represents, what it means, it's a thudding metaphor. It's obvious. Oh, really? It ends by everything exploding in the desert. But you watch it and it becomes something completely different. It almost becomes like the Stargate sequence in 2001. It's just a completely Mm -hmm. other realm of experience. And uh, it's very, very beautiful. Yeah, it's everything missing from the rest of the film in a certain way. Mm. I keep having ideas. Yeah, it's fine. Keep having ideas. James Franco on the bed in Spring Breakers. Wait, is that that's good? A good scene that's a, a good scene in a bad movie. <laughs> okay, because most people think that's a good movie. No. I agree with you, Ashley. No, it's not a it. good movie. I hate Spring Breakers, but I like that scene. Sorry, I have st- I've stopped having ideas now. <laughs> no more ideas ever. No more ideas. Good, good. I, I I almost chose. I mean, then there's a whole there there there's so many categories of both of these. You know, good scenes and bad movies, and bad scenes and good movies. Right? There are scenes in bad movies where the badness of the scene, you know, sort of like crystallizes into a perfect diamond. Right. 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 <laughs> which is not even. Which is a little different than so bad it's good. Right. Like, exactly. It's not actually even camp. It's like it becomes sort of you know this perfect version of itself where everything is in place and it's all so wrong but it you know it becomes something different so I was I was thinking about scenes like that too and you know and truly horrible movies that that just become amazing like for instance Anthony Hopkins perfect horrific stroke acting in Legends of the Fall (laughs) (laughs) which is a truly um horrible movie I mean amazingly horrible just can't believe that it goes on and it reaches new heights of horrificness um you know the scene that where Anthony Hopkins you know reveals himself with like a chalkboard tied around his neck because he can't speak anymore as, as the as this kind of you know Quasimodo meets Mitch McConnell figure um, <laughs> is just you know it's it's where the movie you know achieves its perfect state well, you know you talk about <laughs> things got crystallizing into that perfect moment is there a more crystalline Tarantino 
moment than the the, the Bonnie situation sequence mm. in oh. Pulp Fiction, which is a wonderful film. Change it changed cinema forever, guys. Um, <laughs> but when he just turns up in the film, God. Um, and start yammering away about just, his imaginary black wife and, uh, he's and just yeah. screaming the N-word. and this and that yeah. and you're just like that, that's such a perfect encapsulation of where he goes wrong yeah and it's all there in that yeah. in, the, in the, five minutes of screen time the vanity it's everything it's just exceptionalism right he yes. thinks that he can get away with these yeah. things this is the beginning of it all but yeah. he has right. he has a he has a black wife though it's fine you right. never perfect. see her you don't face see her. he's you perfect never see her fucking think, face. it's bad but it's so perfect. Before we close, as we always do, it would be great to go around and say a film that we saw recently that we liked. Uh, in, in brief, uh, I watched the, the Silence of the Lambs by the late Jonathan Demme for the first time in many years, and I still found it uh, very gripping and, and even surprising, even though I knew what was coming next. I just watched Elaine May's A New Leaf, Yay! which I'd never seen, yes, um, and found it delightful and strange, except for the end, which was really bad. Uh, <laughs> and I actually almost thought about bringing it in as the bad scene in a good movie, although it's so compromised because, of course, the studio took it over from her and made all these terrible choices and cut the film so much so it doesn't so it, it seemed compromised as a choice of a bad scene a good movie but you know the first like seven eighths of the movie I thought was delightful and hilarious and wonderful and and strange um, and everyone should watch it mm-hmm. I guess a quick mention of Bong Joon-ho's Okja yes. which left me an emotional wreck which is uh, which comes on like a kids cgi chase movie and ends like a uh, claude lonsman film <laughs> um it was it was oh um, my god don't remind me of the ending oh it's so heartbreaking well, it is but not not maybe in the way people are thinking that i said that but um it's a poignant ending it's a sad ending it's a sad movie i don't want to give anything away because it's such a shape-shifting strange film but if you like bong joon ho definitely see it when it comes on netflix or when it plays on the big screen here at film society because it's going to be one of the few places that it plays on the big screen at all so see it because it's a big screen movie i will say i saw shanghai express joseph von sternberg's one of his great collaborations with marlena dietrich Somehow I'd never seen this movie before, which is egregious. I'd just seen parts of it, but it's just like so marvelous. Just every part of it, just the the look of it, the strangeness of it. Yeah. But thank you all for coming. (laughs) It's excellent. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. You've been listening to the Film Comment Podcast, sponsored by Filmstruck. Filmstruck is the streaming service for fans of great cinema and the exclusive streaming home for the Criterion Collection, featuring a bounty of independent and foreign titles, plus original bonus material. And Filmstruck is now available on Roku. Start your free trial today at filmstruck.com. The Film Comet Podcast is produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Rapold and edited by Michael Odmark. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth reviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine, or check out our app, available on Android and iOS, at filmcomment.com slash app. Film Comment at the heart of film culture for over 50 years.